Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Edward Keenan. Ed is the Toronto Star's city columnist, a perfect guest for this podcast, as he writes about all things Toronto, including its people, politics, and culture. He has been a finalist for multiple national newspaper and national magazine awards, and has been the author of two best-selling books. Ed recently returned to Toronto after serving three years as the Star's Washington Bureau Chief, and has gotten right back into the swing of things locally by covering next week's municipal elections. Welcome, Ed, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Andrew, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. As you said, I just got back from Washington, D.C. Uh, in September uh, and thrown myself right into the the mayoral election but so i'm at i'm at my home in bluer west village right now my new home in bluer west village uh and i'm doing fairly well as we talk um i don't know when people will be listening to this exactly but as we talk the election is just a few days away so i you know things are a bit busy but they are good and interesting well like all ontario municipalities the city of toronto's election day as you note is this coming monday is election time like your Christmas, both in terms of excitement and in how busy you are? <laughs> um, it can be, and typically it is. This election, as like lots of people have noted, um, maybe doesn't have some of the drama and excitement that we typically come to expect from elections. And the Star Newsroom is an in- interesting point. Like everybody else, there was a lot of remote work during covid that really hasn't changed. Some people have started coming back into the office, you know, one, two days a week. Uh, but a lot of people are still out working from home or working from the field. And so, you know, the kind of the, the hum that a newsroom gets during an election and especially on election night, you know, we have to imagine it virtually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, because because there's not that there. But um, it is like elections are in in the business. If you color politics in in the news business, then elections are, you know, they're the Super Bowl. They're the Christmas, as you say, they're the the, the big crunch where there's lots of things to talk about, lots of action and lots of important things to talk about uh, in this particular Toronto election. I think there are some interesting challengers to John Tory for the mayor's chair, but uh, they haven't so far gotten a ton of traction with the electorate. I guess P- Gil Penalosa in the most recent poll I saw uh, was the main challenger with, you know, 20 percent or so support, mm. which which might be more than a guy with his name recognition would have expected after only a couple months of the campaign, but still hasn't made it the kind of like exciting nail biter uh, <laughs> that, that we've seen in the past where, you know, in 2014, it was John Tory versus Olivia Chow versus Doug Ford. It was sort of like big name upon big name. Nobody was quite sure who was going to win. When Rob Ford first got elected, it was like kind of a come from behind where George Smitherman was expected to be the winner. Joe Pantaloni was running from the left. Adam Jambroni was in there for a bit and got disqualified for a sex scandal. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a history of some, some elections where the result is obviously in doubt. Anything can happen between now and Monday. Uh, This one hasn't had that much drama. But I I do feel like there are big issues facing Toronto. I I mean, housing affordability is is one of them. People just can't afford to live here anymore. A lot of people are 
moving out. I just moved my family back here and had to find a place for us to live. And so I, I kind of know firsthand from a relatively privileged point of view, but, but still the, the pain that kind of looking around to realize you can't afford the house or even the apartment that you thought you might be able to afford. I mean, that's one among many, many big issues facing this city, a lot of which are growing pains as Toronto becomes a, a real global metropolitan city and sort of grows up from being a provincial local regional capital into one of the sort of one of many like but world capital world destinations for immigrants and businesses and whatnot i'm not sure we've quite as a city adjusted our thinking to that role that we are now playing whether we chose it or not you know so i I think there's a lot of important stuff facing toronto right now i'm not sure all of that stuff is really getting aired out in this election the way you might hope it would well, uh, you've read my mind because amongst all the various positions being contested on Monday, I would very much like to focus on Mayor. John Tory, as you've kind of noted, looks like a lock for his third term. Were you critical of his general unavailability for interviews and debates? He kind of made himself scarce. Uh, you could only screw up if he got too involved. What did you think of his performance when he actually jumped into the two debates that he participated in? First of all, I, I, I am critical of his decision to basically decline most debate invitations except for those two. When John Tory first ran for mayor, and now, you know, some people in Toronto will remember he ran in 2003 against David Miller and Barbara Hall sort of to succeed Mel Lastman in the very early days of the megacity. And in that campaign, it became a running joke just how often... Like, the, these, these candidates were spending more time on stage beside each other than they were with their families or their campaign <laughs> managers because there, there were more than 50, I looked it up, more than 50 debates in that campaign season. Wow. Uh, there were sometimes more than one in a day. Like, you, they would have a lunchtime debate, and then they would have an evening debate as well. And I think that was good for the city to have them, I mean, may, maybe 50 is too many, but I think having a lot of opportunities for them to meet with lots of different audiences of people and talk about things and talk about them over a period of time too which means that you know like there can be an ongoing conversation between the different candidates and the press and the and the people in the crowd and the moderators who say you know last week you were saying this have you had a chance to rethink that now we've had a chance to go and look up the numbers and it doesn't seem like it adds up the way you thought like explain more right mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, some of the candidates, like Chloe Brown, uh, Gil Penalosa for sure, uh, Stephen Punwasi, some of the candidates uh, who, who listeners out there may not have heard of unless they watch those debates are, are actually pretty impressive. And I think a lot of people would be surprised and they might have get even more traction if earlier in this campaign and more times during this campaign, they'd have an opportunity to talk to a bigger audience. I would also say... That, that having only two debates and having both of them be weekdays in the afternoon, one was at noon, one was at 2 p.m., <laughs> when most people are at work, um, also not not a great look <laughs> yeah. for anybody, right? Yeah. Um, people, people can go if they still want to and look those up online. You can search them on YouTube uh, because the miracle of this age is even if something happens while you're at work, you, you still get to see it later. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. Now, in the debates, I mean, I think John Tory did... Fine. He did uh, the way... I mean, John Tory as a mayor, his whole persona is kind of like, eh, fine. Right? <laughs> this is not a big vision thing. This is not a big, like, uh, 
wow you. He's, he'll more like talk you into submission than he will uh, inspire you with a, with a big speech he makes, right? Yeah. Um, and I thought he did that at the debates. He defended his record, you know, as well as you might expect him to be. He, he kept saying sort of like, let's bring some facts to the table and trying to point out things that maybe get overlooked often, right? I... I hang with online and otherwise often I hang with a, a, a bunch of downtown progressives who who are likely to say like we've made no progress on bike lines we've made no progress on transit we made we're a group of people in general as a section of the electorate who wants more from mm -hmm. him and from the city right he was able to point out like the things that he has done over a period of eight years now the the slow steady progress that has been made on a lot of these files he didn't get rattled you know Weirdly, for a guy who persona is that he can get along with everybody, he John Tory does have a habit of bristling at, at accusations that he's um, done it, something wrong, that he's dishonest or that he's he's fudged the truth or whatnot. He he didn't allow himself to snap or or get really defensive in those ways that pundits like to gauge, like how do you do in the debate? I think he he lived up to expectations, which is what he's aiming for, right? Because his whole strategy as a front runner in only accepting these two debates, really mm -hmm. limited, is to not give airtime to his opponents and to kind of run out the clock um, without making any huge mistakes. And I mean, that's what he did in the debates. However, I, d I don't think he necessarily conclusively won. I mm -hmm. thought in the first case, Chloe Brown uh, was the most surprisingly to, to people coming in cold who'd never heard of her, like impressive candidate who, who has all kinds of energy, who isn't afraid to bluntly say what she thinks who knows to a large extent what she's talking about you know i think gil penalosa is uh his ideas get a ahead of his rhetoric at some point mm. like i i think he he actually uh is a really accomplished you know thinker and and doer on cities around the globe and and he has a lot of experience and a lot of actually really really good ideas uh for the city i'm not sure that that in debates the fullness of those ideas is made clear to to the audience. But I think, you know, if people are still interested, they should check out his website and look at some of those ideas. And, you know, I hope if he does not win and John Tory does win, I hope uh, John Tory steals some of those ideas. Because yeah. they're not, like, trademarked and they're not particularly, a lot of them, even difficult to implement if you just have the will to do it. That's out there. Good ideas can come from anywhere. One of, one of the big bristles for Mayor Tory is uh, this apparent conflict related to him insisting on retaining his $100,000 a year position serving on the Rogers Family Trust Board while concurrently serving as mayor of a city in which Rogers is one of the major domo corporate citizens. Has the controversy about this died down? And to me, it's a slam dunk for him. Why does he refuse to re recuse himself or resign from the Rogers position? It seems like such an obvious conflict to the average citizen. Why is he so stubborn on this? I don't have, like, a lot of personal insight into that. Um, what I understand is that he feels he has, like, a sacred obligation to the memory of Ted Rogers to, to advise that family and, and the family trust that controls Rogers. He was involved in Rogers for a long time in a lot of different roles, and so... You know, his take on it, publicly at least, is that, you know, he made a commitment to that family to continue to serve them, and he will continue to serve them. He declares his conflict of interest to the public, like he lets them know that he's serving in that role. He does not vote or weigh in at city council on any measures that 
affect Rogers because of that, or he he certainly tries to. He could you know talks to the integrity commissioner, and so I mean I I think I mean partly why he he doesn't do more than that might be because he's not forced to right. There's mm-hmm. no one who's going to be able to force him out <laughs> of office. It hasn't become a big enough issue that it's hurting his reelection efforts or anything like that, and so. Maybe if you look at it from his perspective, it's like, well, why why should I do anything more than that, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and the answer might be that that if you care about the city in the way that John Tory always proclaims to care about the city, then, then you should think its leader should be above suspicion. Right? Yeah. Should do whatever he can to make sure that, that not only is he not in an active conflict of interest, but that there's no question of a... Of a apparent conflict of interest of, of people's suspicions getting raised and I, I would say like he hasn't done anything uh, to to dispel those kind of appearances yeah and to alleviate the concerns of people like us who are out here wondering you know like who does he actually serve and I would just add that in John Tory's world it may be that a hundred thousand dollars a year sounds like an honorarium right yeah like that that if you're a wealthy enough guy who comes from a wealthy enough family you're, you're kind of like, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I get paid, you know, very low six figures. It's the lowest yeah. six-figure number there is. So, I mean, it yeah. hardly counts as anything, right? But but to most of the people that, that he is the mayor of, yeah. that, that's a lot of money, right? That's I, more than most of us earn in a year. So, I think you raise an excellent point because I actually find him quite honorable. I actually don't even think there'd be an issue. I just don't understand why he doesn't see the optics that all he has to do is stop being so stubborn, let this go, and people would never even bring it up. Because to your point, I don't think it is very unlikely he's got any actual conflict, but it just seems like he should have cleared it up. The Toronto Legends podcast is powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, where you can try this month's limited edition beer, Amelia Red Heifeweizen, inspired by Amelia Earhart's passion for flying that started right here in Toronto. Go to hendersonbrewing.com to order now or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road, located along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. I want to remind everyone, this is Toronto Legends. We value all your opinions and all your thoughts on the election with it being so timely, but even more important is learning about Edward Keenan. So if you don't mind, we're going to go all the way back and get your story where were you born? And tell us about your upbringing. <laughs> I was born at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. So I was born in Toronto. My parents were born in Toronto. My grandparents were born in, well, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was born in a house on Adelaide Street in the kitchen of an apartment there. Uh, my, my maternal grandparents were born in, in Ontario, but in like the Perry Sound area. But so, so oh, yeah, I was, I was born in Toronto uh, and I lived... For the early part of my life, uh, in what used to be called South Riverdale, right? Mm-hmm. So I was—I don't know if people out there know where Eastdale Collegiate is, but I lived across the street. Uh, my address was six eighty-four and a half Gerard <laughs> Street. Uh, those, um, which which was a house, not an apartment. But I guess when they were subdividing the lots there to build townhouses, rather than having like six eighty-four A or whatever, which they do elsewhere, they just. Every every second house is a half, right? Yeah. So it's six eighty six and a half, six eighty eight, 
688.5, you know. And I went to St. Anne's Catholic School on Bolton Avenue, which is no longer there. It's townhouses now, but Dundas Street Public School uh, is right next door, which was the original exterior of uh, of the school in the Kids of Degrassi Street, which <laughs> yes. then became Degrassi <laughs> Junior High, which then became Degrassi High. Uh, it was never, as far as I understand, filmed actually in that school. <laughs> but they did film the kids of Degrassi Street at a little park around the corner on Degrassi Street. Uh, and there was a convenience store there that featured in the in that show on TV yeah. Ontario. Uh, and, and that convenience store was where my friends and I used to go to actually um, buy, you know, penny candy and stuff after school. Uh, Lucy cigarettes, like <laughs> the grade eights at our school, who used to walk me to school, would stop in and pay ten cents or whatever for a single cigarette. Um, so you know, without even telling you exactly how old I am, people can start to imagine uh, when the elementary school kids were bu openly buying cigarettes at the convenience store. Um, so so I lived there uh, until I was uh, in high school, and then my family moved to Scarborough. I lived near Markham and Lawrence in Scarborough through my teenage years uh, and and much of my 20s I went to high school on the Scarborough Bluffs at Cardinal Newman Catholic High School and then mm -hmm. I attended uh, journalism school at Ryerson um, so now now we've we've brought you through uh, my university years uh, <laughs> did you want me to just keep going I, I want to uh, know from there well first of all I like I'm in the same the house I grew up in I only <laughs> wish my parents still had it that property on Gerard uh, now that it's all gentrifying over there, yeah, that, uh, today would be a, a couple of six, seven figure property. Yeah, when when I lived in South Riverdale, so back in the 1980s, and I, and be, because I've written about the city, uh, I've come to understand this in a way that I didn't actually when I was living there. But South Riverdale used to be uh, the poorest neighborhood in the city. It, if you look at the the maps of of sort of like where the rich areas are, where the poor areas are, and where the city and the and the federal government needed to target, you know, social supports. In the 1970s and 80s, uh, the area that was then called South Riverdale was was the poorest neighborhood of the city. It, it contained Domount Court. It contained part of the, the eastern edge of Regent Park. And it was a real working class neighborhood. It was where my dad grew up as well. It's now sort of rebranded as Riverside, that section of it. So Riverdale, everybody knows up near the Danforth and, and down south of that along Riverdale Avenue and whatnot. Um, and then south of that, they now call it Riverside, whereas back then we just used to call it South Riverdale. It's all about the branding. And, and, and it's changed a lot. When, when my parents sold their house in the late 80s on Gerard Street and bought a house in Scarborough, they were the same, basically the same price. It was basically a trade, right? Yep. They were getting a little bit more front lawn and backyard and a garage, you know, a bedroom for all four of their kids but it was you know a bungalow in Scarborough and a townhouse in in Riverside which today Riverside were basically a trade uh, and it it was you know now I, I would say that the, the house in Riverside is probably worth twice as much <laughs> these were uh, these were golden days my late father went to Riverdale and we always say shout out to mm. Archie and Jughead but that was a different <laughs> Riverdale <laughs> Ed, I want to know from Ryerson, you finished journalism school and then you made your way through iWeekly, The Grid, and to The Star. Uh, tell us about that path. Well, I dropped out of uh, Ryerson Journalism School, partly because, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of reasons. <laughs> uh, partly, I, I didn't pay my tuition in the third year at all, and the school wouldn't let me re-enroll. Uh, mm. But I also had some 
some problems in my personal life in the third year, and so I would sort of have been on academic serious probation anyway after doing fairly well in my first two years. So I, I just kind of took a break from that, and I thought I'll just go out and get a job, right? Especially journalism seemed to me at the time, like, what, what do I need this paper for? I'll just mm -hmm. go out and do it. And it turned out that getting anybody <laughs> to pay me to just go out and do it was a significant challenge. Uh, there was a, a massive recession in the early 1990s and mid-1990s. For a long time, youth unemployment and unemployment in general was a dominating issue of the federal elections at that time. So I remember at a certain point, I had to track it for a, a program that I was involved in, and I was applying for 50 jobs a week. And I got one, over the course of a month, I got one interview, and... Uh, I was not hired. Uh, so I, I was having a really, really tough time. And, I mean, th those 50 jobs a week included, like, McDonald's and stuff. Like, I <laughs> yeah. just couldn't even get hired as a fry cook, you know? Yep. Um, so I was not employed as a, as a journalist for a long time. And so I, I did a bunch of other things. I worked as an office assistant. Uh, I worked a little bit in retail. I worked... I don't even remember now. But... Uh, the, the strange twisting of events is that eventually I wound up uh, running a restaurant with my aunt and my brother uh, because my aunt had bought it and was in over her head trying to figure out how to make it survive. So, you know, we, we thought we might have some ideas. We, we did not entirely turn it around. <laughs> we <laughs> okay. sort of stabilized things, but, uh, but after uh, a short time, it, it became clear that we were never going to be able to catch up on the back rent and the hydro and whatnot on a, a young street, like right across from the reference library there. Hmm. So we wound up uh, selling that restaurant, and then I worked as a short order cook for, for the people who bought it from us. And I worked there, and then I worked at uh, Tarot Grill on Queen Street West down near mm -hmm. Spadina as a, as a cook again for, for uh, a few years. And so there was a point, I guess, where I was like 29 years old, and just getting married and i said to my wife you know like i never intended to to, to be a cook right like i was mm -hmm. supposed to be a writer this is my thing yep. right uh and she said well why don't you go and do that um and we didn't have any money she was a bartender and a full-time undergraduate student at the time but uh you know because she was a full-time student we had a, a very small in retrospect uh but act existing line of credit there that we had used to pay for our wedding and then we got some gifts to pay back most of what we had borrowed and and so using that line of credit i went and supported myself a little bit while i did an unpaid internship at iweekly which was you know a competitor of now magazine uh, and alt weekly in the tradition of great alt weeklies that seems to have all but died in north america mm -hmm. um but you know so as an intern there i was you know fact checking and and compiling listings and also just writing as much as i could about about the city and everything in it and so i i was taking assignments you, you know in the same week i would write something about city hall politics like about the affordable housing file and how mel lastman wasn't getting houses built or affordable units built like he promised that he would and then in the same issue, I would have an arts piece uh, about a theater production that was opening. And in that same issue, I would, you know, have fact-checked all the music reviews and also have a story about how the distillery district was, you know, going to open soon and they had preserved all these old buildings. And, it, and then I, you might write opinion columns and editorials on top of that. So sometimes like three or four or five or six 
you know, feature stories a week. And I was running myself into the ground, but I was having a great time. And it was a great education um, just in, I mean, this was the city I had grown up in and loved. But also be, being sort of the yes guy at iWeekly who just put my hand up and say, I'll take that assignment. Sure. Yeah. Art galleries. I'd love to write about art galleries. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like boring, you know, waste management stories from City Hall. Sure, I'll do that. Right? I'll like do it. A provocative editorial on, you know, why the prime minister is a bum. Yes, I'll, I'll do that. Right? Like, and so, you know, I, I did that. And at the end of that, I got hired, you know, quote, unquote. Uh, I got a sort of a freelance contract that was regular to be, to have the title of staff writer at iWeekly. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was hired as an editor there. You know, and then slowly promoted to senior editor, and I, in that time I started uh, almost by default being the the main politics columnist there. And it's it's a sad kind of thing when you look back in retrospect, where like what happened is that costs kept being cut, and so a lot of the veteran political reporters that we had that we were paying more to. <laughs> Uh, would get laid off in waves of cost cutting. And so mm -hmm. then, you know, as a city editor or senior editor, it's sort of like, well, who's going to cover the municipal election or who's going to cover this big issue? I guess it will be me. Yep. Um, and, and I was always interested in that enough anyway. That, you know, that sort of evolved as my main kind of role. And when I weekly turned into the grid, I, I was kept on on the title senior editor, but my job became being sort of like the lead columnist and, and uh, one of the main feature writers, uh, writing about city issues, municipal affairs, government politics. Like I was that guy at a magazine called The Grid that was mm -hmm. economically not successful in, in the, f I guess, three or, f three or four years that it was running, but was a sort of a cultural success. Mm -hmm. um, it had an impact. Uh, it was getting read by the people that, that we wanted to read it. It was helping define a zeitgeist in the city for a young-ish, urban-living people. It was less alt-weekly and more street-level city magazine. Mm -hmm. um, but, but so then, then when that folded, and at, at that point, that's where I was getting nominated for those National Magazine Awards and whatnot. It was also the rise of the social media era. And importantly, I think, for my career in retrospect, I, I mean... You, you never want to say these things that, that maybe are bad for the city are good for your career, right? But yeah. I think the fact that the rise and, and fall of, or there was certainly the rise of Rob Ford happened while I was there, and that I mm -hmm. had already been uh, covering him as the city guy at um, iWeekly. And I'd written a big feature about Rob Ford, you know, when he was just a city councillor that all the other city councillors hated, right? And, and so my writing about Rob Ford and the circus that, that had come into Toronto City Hall had really gotten a lot of traction on social media and elsewhere. And my readership was a lot bigger than maybe a free weekly I, I expected it traditionally to be. And, and so when and I, I, you know, I wrote a book, Some Great Idea, um, which is about Toronto more broadly since amalgamation, but was... Uh, sold and, and sold well in bookstores for a for an indie small press um, book about one city. Uh, it sold well on the strength of it being sort of like ripped from the headlines in the mm -hmm. Rob Ford era and ending, unfortunately, at that point on a cliffhanger where we weren't sure if he was going to be kicked out of office by a court or not. I'm mm -hmm. like, actually, I had to rewrite the last chapter and, and acknowledge in it like, 
this story is not finished yet. Yeah. Um, the grid folded just as um, Rob Ford was preparing to run for re-election. Uh, and the grid had been owned by Torstar, which also owns the Toronto Star. And yep. so at that point, the Star had been republishing some of my columns uh, fairly regularly at that point. And so at that point, I got hired officially as a city columnist at the Star. And that's what I've been doing ever since then. And I, uh, well, th not really. I went to Washington, right? But I got to say, like, being a city columnist at the Toronto Star, being a city columnist at a big city daily is one of the best gigs in journalism. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of freedom in it uh, to to play with your voice, to play with how you tackle things, to look at the things that interest you and a lot of ability to write about things where you can actually make a change. Right. That you can actually write about something uh, or a group of people who want something changed and actually see City Hall respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's really powerful. And then you can write about things that that matter to people's lives and not just that matter to people's lives but that the people reading it understand why it matters to their lives right yeah it's a challenge like when i was in washington dc you're writing about trade negotiations and you're trying to figure out how to connect the dots for people about why steel tariffs or aluminum tariffs that trump might be imposing on canadian imports might trickle down to actually affect them in their life in rexdale right <laughs> like yeah how, how are aluminum tariffs going to make any difference to me right here yeah um whereas when you write about you know whether or not there's going to be recreation programs for your kids this fall when you write about a, a shooting on the danforth when you write about you, you know school issues or or garbage pickup issues everybody understands how that connects to their life because these are the the city is where they live and those bigger geopolitical issues like definitely affect us and a lot of them in the long term affect us more dramatically yeah but you know in your city columnist you get to write about the stuff of people's daily lives and that's a pretty rewarding job well that's why it was such a big change for you you as you say you had a very big voice and connected to the residents of this city writing for the toronto star let's talk about this recently completed exciting foreign adventure you served as the Toronto Star's Washington Bureau Chief for three years, starting in 2019. You're covering U.S. politics and current affairs. How'd you end up taking this assignment and physically moving to the USA? Uh, so, you know, I, I just outlined for you, you know, briefly, we talked about it for a few minutes, but my career in journalism, but, <clears throat> and my life before that. So, you know, a lot of my friends, when they went to university age or whatnot, they went out of town and they lived in Montreal or they lived in Los Angeles, or they lived wherever, right? Um, they saw something in the world. And a lot of my friends over the years would, would travel a lot. I mean, when I was a kid, our vacations were camping in Ontario. Yep. Often Perry Sound or, you know, a campground near Wasega Beach. All of our vacations were basically that. Like, uh, I, I didn't get on a plane until after I had finished university or left university. I, I didn't put my foot in the ocean until my children were born. So, you know, I, I had a lot of experience in Toronto and a lot of love for this city. But I had always wondered, like, what it would be like to live somewhere else, to just go for away sure. and experience something else in the world. Uh, also, I had spent my entire career up until that point writing about the city and city issues. And the way I phrased it at the time, but this is legitimately how I felt, is, is that, you know, like, you know, when you have a favorite song, and it may still be your favorite song of all time, but you listen to it and listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. And after a while, like, 
that drum fill that used to like get your heart racing like just seems so predictable right mm -hmm. and that melody line that that used to just like be magic has become a bit boring right you still understand why you loved it mm -hmm. but you, you don't want to listen to it again a <laughs> hundred times today um and writing about the city over a period of like like 16 17 years in a row where that was my main job was writing about the city and city politics and city issues began to be like i've i've written all these columns before and you know in the very odd cases i had changed my mind but in a lot of cases like i've already made these arguments yeah i'm now looking for a fresh new way to say the same thing i've said 10 times before right yep Maybe somebody with fresh eyes need to look at this, but maybe I need to go somewhere where, where everything still looks fresh and new to me. And so the United States is certainly that. Now, Washington, D.C. in the Trump era was certainly a different environment and certainly an exciting one. That job came open because Daniel Dale, who was my predecessor there, had been hired by CNN, and so there was a vacancy. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had sent to the management at the star they posted it publicly the job uh you know publicly for for star employees first of all like it's a union shop so you know uh to apply and i had just said do you think i could be a candidate for that and do it sort of the way i do things right like you know maybe more traditionally uh the washington bureau chief would be more of a, a standard kind of reporter whereas I've, I've been an opinion columnist and maybe i won't be writing straight up opinion columns but but it'd be a bit more voicey, a bit more analysis, a bit more of, of the way I approach things. And, and they said, you know, maybe uh, that sounds like it would be an interesting thing to consider. So I applied. I got the job. Uh, and now I have three kids and a wife. So we had to move <laughs> down there in, in a real hurry. Neither of us had ever been to Washington, D.C. before. Wow. Uh, before I got the job. Uh, and so, you know, we flew down. We did some research online about what neighborhoods had good schools in them which is like yeah. a primary i mean the thing is a lot of people down there will send their kids to private schools more so yeah. than here i know i know people there are people in toronto who, who go to private schools and stuff but it's not like a, a standard thing in most neighborhoods uh but you know like i have three kids so looking at good private schools in dc at tuition of like forty thousand fifty thousand dollars a year per kid was not part of our budget so yes we we basically shopped for housing by school district and found a, a place to live up in the northwest corner of the city in the suburbs in, in Bethesda, Maryland, mm -hmm. right on the district line. And it was lovely. Uh, living there is actually like, uh, from a family life point of view, was actually a lovely experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, our neighbors were great. Uh, it's a beautiful city, like a really stunningly beautiful city, both in how it's designed, the architecture, the parkland. The, it's a, such a green city, such a massive amount of mature forests, just like everywhere. And it's a fascinating place. There's like so much American history. I mean, one thing that stands out to you when, when you look at D.C. and the United States and American cities have giant problems uh, that we can be grateful we don't have in Toronto. And so, so, but there's sort of different problems, right? Like with guns, uh, with the way they fund their education system, where they have schools that just cannot teach people to read and write, with their healthcare system, which again, if you're a, a wealthy person with really good health insurance, uh, it, it's like a spa. The health yeah. system there, a visit to the hospital can be like uh, you're treated like uh, like you're at a spa. 
But if you if you don't have good health insurance, if you have no health insurance, if you it can be a nightmare and a bureaucratic nightmare. Just even trying to sort out your bills afterwards, like even if you have good insurance, you get a bill from the hospital afterwards that says your treatment was four hundred and eighty seven thousand dollars and your <laughs> insurance crazy. company agreed to pay one hundred and forty two thousand dollars <laughs> and we have downgraded the uh charge by x amount and so you still may or may not owe twelve hundred dollars <laughs> uh and so you know phone us and so and like like and then you you maybe negotiate with them and maybe you don't have to pay or maybe you do or maybe your insurance company but it's like it's a nightmare, and and that's if you have insurance, and that's assuming you have that money in the bank to even settle that bill eventually. Like, and if if you don't, and if you're um, somebody who's not very sophisticated in, in navigating those kind of systems, if you're somebody who's like working two jobs just to try and put food on the table, and at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out how what what exactly that visit to the doctor for your kid costs, yeah. and whether you have to pay it. So, as I say, there are big problems uh, in the United States that we can be very grateful we don't have here. But there's also a sense in the United States where they're, like, conspicuously striving for greatness. They're obsessed with being great, whereas in, in Canada, I think we're obsessed with being nice, with orderly, yes. with, like, yes. uh, things should run. There's a fairness, you know? Um, and, and those are, they produce different outcomes. But... When you walk around a city like Nash, Washington, D.C., uh, it's just monumental in scale. And that can be interesting and inspiring on a day-to-day -day, uh, life. And that's not uh, even without getting into what the job itself was. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about because Ed, it's an understatement to say it's a different lifestyle in the U.S. versus Canada, but particularly Washington. I agree, an amazing city. But I want you to take us behind the scenes. What is it actually like to work in and around the White House? Um, so the White House is a, like a fortress, right? To anybody who wants to visit there, uh, e even in a professional capacity, you have to go through all these Secret Service security screenings in advance, um, like submit all your information and they run a background check on you. You have to show up like a couple hours early and get screened through. It's not like the airport. It's like the airport times 10 of like mm -hmm. sort of being searched and wanted and quarantined in an area while they check things out and then you get in there and it's a lot smaller than you think it's going to be the press room is what it looks like on tv except the part that's not on camera is kind of like unfinished a lot there's open duct work and whatnot there's and it's it's a much smaller room than you imagine it is like all those people are in there crowded shoulder to shoulder and it feels more like you're you're in um like the living room, dining room of a house on Logan <laughs> yeah. Avenue somewhere, like in Toronto, of a semi-detached yeah. house, than it does like a, an auditorium. Uh, and, and the hallways alongside that, where the um, White House press gallery works day to day, um, is just like closets and desks in hallways, right? Like there's not really, it's not a expanse of offices. Like the people will work their entire career uh, to be appointed the White House correspondent. And then they sit in a little hallway on a desk that's just <laughs> a little bit bigger than their laptop computer. And people going to the bathroom are walking behind them and brushing them on the back while they're working. Um, it's, it's cramped in there. Uh, but then when you get led into the Oval Office or the East Room for a press conference or whatever, an event, uh, or, you know, to see the president uh, greet, say, Justin Trudeau, which is the one time I was in the Oval Office... 
you can kind of feel the weight of history in those offices. They're built uh, like like much of the rest of the city to inspire a certain kind of awe, to reflect the kind of history of them. Um, the vice president's ceremonial office, which is in a building directly beside the White House, is actually like this ornate, it's kind of like a French um, uh, style of architecture. I can't call it off the top of my head, but it's got all this, you know, gold leaf and molding and ornate mirrors and murals and whatnot in it. it again, they're, they're just rooms that you, you'd like to spend just a little while. Some of them are, are kind of gaudy and some of them are kind of beautiful, but you'd like to spend some time just wandering around and looking at the architecture and stuff and just and just thinking about the things that have happened in those very spaces uh, that you're well aware of. But often, if you're a member of the press, you don't you don't have a lot of time for that uh, sitting around. I almost got tackled in the Oval Office because I was um, there's a, a ton of us getting filed into there and you're trying to like rush around for positioning. So yeah. that you can hear the prime minister and the president when they make their little speeches, have their little brief conversation for the cameras, answer questions. And the side of the room closest to me, when you first walk in off the, the doors from the Rose Garden, uh, was just like really crowded. And there's space on the other side of the room. So I was trying to walk around to the other side of the room, but it was crowded in the little pathway to get there. So I tried to go around behind the president's desk, behind the, uh -oh. the resolute desk. And I got grabbed by the, the scruff of my neck and just dragged backward. And it was a, a woman who was shouting, no, 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 <laughs> nobody goes behind the desk. So as it happened, I had my phone camera like recording because I knew I was only going to have a few minutes in there. And I thought, I'm just going to take video of the room and all the details. I won't have time to soak up. But so yeah. on that on that camera and I posted it on Facebook for my friends and family is like <laughs> you you could just you can't see the officer grabbing me but you can see the results of that and you can hear her shouting at me so I mean the Capitol building also which is where I, I went more off much more often than I spent at the White House itself also uh, a building where you really feel and sense and see the weight of history you see the and this is where at the time when the Capitol building was built uh, it was being built sort of while Lincoln was the president, just uh, before and after the Civil War. Um, and so the United States was a much smaller country at that point and a much less prominent and powerful country in the world. And yet when you see the Capitol building they built for themselves, both the design of it and the uh, execution of it, the you see that this was a country that was aiming from the very beginning to be a world capital or the mm -hmm. world capital. And it does inspire a certain awe. And that's there's such a contrast to the way that the legislators there sometimes treat it, <laughs> somehow it sometimes behave in there. Yeah. Um, uh, that that but it it is a building that will take your breath away. Um, and in, in there the press galleries are much much more like the rest of the building. The Senate press gallery is a is a looks like a members club from the 50s or something with the you yeah. know, paneling and the marble <laughs> and the whatnot well i think that's what that's what i view and, and in my mind i'm picturing on the one hand we got ed keenan down there he's palling around with president trump and president biden and on the other hand i'm saying new york times washington post boston globe you're just a foreign journalist how did you rank amongst them all how did they treat you and what kind of interactions did you have with President Trump, President Biden? Uh, very few interactions with the presidents themselves. Uh, some more interactions with their staffs, uh, staffs and their supporters at events and whatnot. But, I, you know, 
one thing is when you're the city columnist for the Toronto Star and you uh, call the mayor's office or the premier's office for that matter, uh, they call you back. And it, it's not always that, that, that John Torrey will personally call me back, but sometimes he will. <laughs> um, uh, it's not always, you know, when, when Rob Ford was the mayor or when Doug Ford is the premier, uh, I've been a critic of theirs. They don't always, they're not always eager to talk to me directly, but their staff cares what I'm going to write. And they're mm-hmm. really responsive and trying to get me information, trying to spin me. When, when you're the Toronto Star, uh, Washington Bureau Chief, uh, the white, you, you do not rank on the White House's scale of concerns at all. The White House and, and Congress, for that matter, do a very good job of having like lists where members of the press galleries can get all the announcements and get uh, register for background briefings held by senior administ- administration officials. They're like uh, group conference calls and whatnot. And so all this sort of like standard, like, you need to know this stuff. But in terms of trying to build relationships or trying to get uh, uh, a response on something, trying to get even a comment, I, there was a, a staff member for a for a, a senator, a U.S. senator, said to me at one point because we were just talking casually, and they were all very friendly enough. But it's like, you know, it's not just from a U.S. senator's point of view. It's not just like, oh well, the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN are are more important. Uh, though they are for them, for the job that they do, right? It's that, um, you know, you know. there's a long list of those national publications and then the local publications. If you're the senator for, um, for Michigan, then, you know, the Detroit Free Press and the Washington, mm-hmm. the Michigan papers are important to you, right? But, like, it, let's say you're the senator for Wyoming. N- no, none of your constituents, uh, approximately zero of your constituents, will ever read <laughs> uh, what they say to the Toronto Star. Unless... Unless they shove their foot so far down their own mouth that it becomes a viral international headline, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if if they do well, if they just give you the answers to the questions and it becomes a, a story that's of concern to Canadians, there's absolutely nothing the senator gains from having given that interview, right? Yep. If they somehow foul it up and say something really offensive then it's going to come back to hammer them. And so it, it's worse than you just not being a priority. It's like they all actively avoid you much of the time. And there <laughs> are exceptions risk. to that. The uh, Congress, members of Congress, uh, especially Brian Higgins, say, who represents Buffalo, Niagara Falls, uh, he's kind of like the uh, the member of Congress for Canada. He's the chair yeah. of the Congressional <laughs> Border Caucus, and he really deals with a lot of Canada-U.S. issues. He, he I think, considers Toronto part of his constituency or the Toronto media market is watched by his constituents, right? So, you know, there are, and there are uh, staff members in a lot of border states who will call you back and try to give you information because they think it's important, that relationship. But in general, in the pecking order of the White House or the Capitol building, you're just a fly on the wall. And you, and some days they treat you like you're lucky that they, they didn't just swat mm-hmm. you, right? That yeah. they let you in. But you know, you can you can learn a lot and observe a lot as a fly on the wall because the uh, the other side of that is that your job as a as a foreign correspondent from Toronto is is not it's not to like provide voter information to Americans so they know what they're doing, right? You're not competing with the Washington Post for scoops uh, to like about some scandal in North Carolina that's going to yep. change the course of the election. You're trying to tell Canadians like what does it look like down here? Is it as is big a powder keg as it is? Should I be concerned that the elephant is going to roll over while I'm sleeping next to it? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and so to that to that extent like the outsider perspective is often like a, a decent one to have and i've i found it as much as i learned anything at the capitol building or at the white house or at the state department or going to the pentagon uh i learned a lot just traveling around the united states and during the campaigns and whatnot going to trump rallies like actually physically going to them and going to the towns where they're held and spending time there getting out a little bit before covid shut things down during the primaries to various states and seeing the political cultures and, and the cultures of those places being that fly on the wall that uh, tourist uh to some extent who's sticking his nose in and poking around and asking questions you, you get a a bit of a different perspective and I hope that in my work there I was able to bring some of that perspective to readers which uh, maybe is as valuable as anything I provided in terms of like an inside view of what's actually happening at, at Congress but I, I mean during the time I was there and I don't know if this was going to be your next question but it's like I covered two impeachment trials the <laughs> yep. insurrectionist riot at the Capitol the Black Lives Matter um, protests, some of which turned into like massive riots with the police. I covered a school shooting in Uvalde and a, and a shooting in Buffalo. I covered a contested elector, election campaign featuring Donald Trump and, and a change, uh, a defeat of an incumbent. I mean, and the pandemic, of course, which was happening here in Canada as well. But uh, I had a front row seat to how that played out as a cultural war in the United States. Uh, which again spilled over into a cultural war in Canada eventually. So you know, in three years, I got to see a lot of history firsthand, and I I was not high up on anybody's list of who who should be invited into the back room to hear the inside scoop of how it happened. But I was sitting in the front room seeing it happen with my own eyes, and for that opportunity, I'm gonna always be grateful. And I I hope as I come back to Toronto, it provides me a a bit of a different perspective. <laughs> On, on things that are happening here, both things that I'm grateful for and things that I worry we might take for granted that could lead us into places where we won't have them to take for granted anymore. So, Well, it's absolutely, when you summarize it like that, it's incredible the experience you had. And as you look back at all the things you witnessed and you were there for, it really is incredible. I mean, it, an adventure is the word for it. You're back in Toronto. I do want to ask you about... Uh, your compatriot, your colleague, the equivalent Toronto-focused columnist over at Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, Marcus G. Friend, enemy, or frenemy? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think we're uh, like fond enough acquaintances. Uh, I've known Marcus at City Hall. Like I've known his work for uh, basically my entire career. Uh, but you know, we we have seen each other at City Hall and chit-chatted and whatnot uh, quite a lot over the years. Um, I don't think there's any animosity there. Uh, we're certainly the the papers we work for are in competition for news, um, and that competition spins over into into like opinion columnists, like trying to be the authoritative voice or whatever. But I actually think that that a healthy ecosystem, both both in competition for reporting, but also when it comes to columnists, you feel like you're in an ongoing discussion, sometimes a debate, but sometimes uh, just a, a conversation with the other columnists in the city, like Marcus G., but also, you know, Chris Selle at the National Post, um, a lot of the national and provincial columnists, um, you know, about things that are important to the city. And so sometimes I'll be reading Marcus's column and I, I want to, we don't, we don't often write columns in direct response to each other, but I sometimes be inspired to 
elaborate on a point he made or to uh, take a different point of view uh, than he took. Uh, sometimes I, I'm mentioning, uh, you know, that because he said something, it made me think of this. More often, you know, I'm just reading these other people who have opinions and commentary and analysis of the city. And that extends to, like, talk radio hosts and news broadcasters as well. Because I, I think, like, it's a big city and it needs lots of different perspectives. So, I mean, our personal relationship, like, I, I don't think Marcus and I have ever, uh, like, been friends, but we're certainly friendly. We catch up uh, whenever we bump into each other and, and have a, a collegial conversations. But I, I think... Um, in terms of like our place in the city, I, I feel like it's a much more friendly conversation that we're having through our two newspapers than it is any sort of intense rivalry. And, well, and I think it's the punchline to that would be great is if I could name somebody who I do have an intense rivalry <laughs> with. <laughs> well, um, but I mean Sue Ann Levy uh, and I, who who bonded at at one point uh, a little bit at a at a union shop <laughs> training session because. Her unionized newspaper and mine, we both went to, to sort of get some training to, to be involved in our unions, and, and we, we had a very friendly relationship at that uh, seminar. But, you know, I, I think uh, with her and Joe Warmington, who I've had good conversations with on the radio at some point, both of them, um, we, we had more of a direct back and forth because we had a more diametrically opposed opinions on quite a lot of issues. And I think that that ongoing debate with the Toronto Sun often often is is more of a open rivalry but I would still say that it's not like a bitter and angry at least not on my front well you certainly as you I think the way you described it is great it's an ecosystem there's a lot of different pieces in the ecosystem but I do want to ask you as we close up here you've been very generous with your time I want to give you one more and that's the other stakeholders you have the readers do you get fan mail and do you get hate mail and and do you enjoy getting this feedback? <laughs> <laughs> How much I enjoy getting it depends a lot on the day. I do get some uh, fan mail or at least um, and I do get hate mail and some hate mail is like threatening and really ugly and and the I I could do without that. The most interesting mail I get is often not neither fan mail nor hate mail. But it, it's like people who are responding to something I wrote uh, with perspectives of their own or ideas of their own or, you know, telling me their own experience that's related, which often helps me. Occasionally, that what they tell me will wind up in some future column. But it also helps my thinking. It's like if people are reading something I wrote and it resonates in a way that makes them want to share some of their experience or their thoughts or what I made them think about and then they share that in a way that makes me think about it again differently then then that's the best kind of mail i get and mm -hmm. and when i say mail there i mean a lot of it comes by email uh increasingly less and less of it comes by snail mail but there's still the odd letter oh yeah um, there was this one woman who not just me but a lot of different columnists and reporters at the star she'd send like little cards and snippets with stickers on them and just like great job right and she was famous <laughs> for it uh you get these snail mail letters with these wonderful stickers and this beautiful handwriting that just says like bravo very good column like and nothing else right but just that yeah. it, it can kind of make your day but but then also like on twitter um and social media you see responses to your work and again you can get drowned out in the negativity or even the cheerleading even when you write something that really resonates that's that's powerful to see but sometimes you see a sort of like being embraced in some sort of 
as a weapon in some sort of war, right? Like people are hitting each other over the head with competing news stories or competing newspaper columns. And, you know, that that can be like, yeah, you know, some days it's validating and some days you're like, I'd rather not be a combatant in this war uh, <laughs> yep. if I have a choice. Um, but, but, I mean, the most interesting things, again, are when people respond in a way th that you're showing them they're actually engaged with your ideas. And whether they agree or not, they're they're responding with their own ideas or their own reactions to those ideas beyond just like, this is good or this is bad, <laughs> right? Um, to, to actually say like, it, you know, this this part of your column made me think of this. And, yeah. And that made me want to say this to you because maybe you hadn't thought of that. Or maybe I shared your experience. Or maybe I had a very different experience. And th those are the most interesting reactions to get. Well, on that note, Ed, where can we best follow you and where can the listeners follow all of your work well uh so i uh, you know at the star.com is uh the the main hub of all my journalism journalism and journalistic work uh it and you know i think we have a sale on subscriptions right now so if people are hitting that paywall and i, I you know a buck a week or 50 cents a week right now i think um and then uh you know on twitter you can find me at the Keenan Wire, uh, and my email address is ekeenan at the star .ca. and so those are the best ways to, to um, either send me stuff or follow what I'm up to, um, and and just see me along the way. Excellent. Well, I'm in the minority. If you can believe it, I am still a print subscriber to the Toronto Star. I enjoy all your work. I've enjoyed talking to you today, and I want to wish you uh, continued success going forward. Andrew, it's, it's been a real pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and share some of these memories and some of this history with you. Fantastic. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Edward Keenan, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.